Tech Trends is an original podcast series that dives into topics like quantum computing, 5G, and design thinking. Our conversations touch on how tech can transform the way businesses deliver for their customers, clients, and communities. For more information, visit jpmorgan.com technology. Hi there, I'm Jennifer Strong, host of In Machines We Trust. We're hard at work on a bunch of new episodes, and in the meantime, we'd like to share another show we made that I think you're going to love. It's about cybercrime, and it's got pirates and cats, too. It's called The Extortion Economy, and it's a five-part series we made with ProPublica. Here's episode one. This is MIT Technology Review. There seems to be a new ransomware attack every week. No entity, public or private, is safe from these attacks. Make no mistake, if we do not step up our cybersecurity readiness, the consequences will be severe. Colonial is one of hundreds of uh, victims of ransomware attacks against uh, our nation's uh, critical infrastructure of this year. The technology might be new, but this is not the first time there's been an epidemic of extortion and ransom. In Italy, the 20-year period starting in the late 1960s has a name, the Years of Lead. Beginning with labor strikes in 1969, it was a time of significant political unrest. Right-wing and left-wing paramilitary groups terrorized the Italian people with bombings, shootings, and an epidemic of kidnapping that peaked in the mid-1970s. The Associated Press spoke to one of the victims in 1974. What were your kidnappers like, and how did they treat you in general? First, I can't say very much because I, I haven't seen them at all, of course, because I was blindfolded. And, oh, no. Luigi Rossi di Montalera was kidnapped by a group of mafia bandits in his hometown the previous fall. He was 27, Italian nobility, and was working as a manager at his family's business, the iconic vermouth maker Martini and Rossi. They threatened to kill you, that kind of thing? Yes, that kind of thing. Then some other times, for instance, I was, I was asking things and they wouldn't give me, especially the thing of not speaking to me, which is probably the, the worst torture of all, because, you know, you have to speak to somebody when you are... And physically they treated you all right? They gave you food? Uh, well, yes, I, I can't complain it anyway. I had some food, sufficient food, not very good. The kidnappers brought him to a farmhouse a couple hours away in northern Italy. He spent four months in captivity, sometimes only able to move his arms, his captors mostly refusing to speak to him. How did you manage to, to survive in these circumstances without going mad? Well, you know, at the beginning I survived because I was always hoping that it was a question of very few days. When I understood that it was going to be a very long thing, I made a sort of program of uh, thought. I mean, one day it could be philosophy, another day it could be history or even any sort of problem. And uh, then uh, on the physical point of view, I was doing gymnastics every day. How did you do gymnastics in this confined very, space? Very, very little. I could just move my arms and make some, you know, how do you say it? Or, mm, press ups? Yes, press ups. Then I had some books after about a month, and so I could read a little, and especially, you know, to have always something to do and not to stay there thinking to the situation. At the time, mafia groups, like the ones that kidnapped him, targeted members of wealthy families who could afford to pay a large ransom. By 1974, children of families targeted by kidnapping gangs were being escorted to school by armed guards, 
the Italians took self-defense classes in the hope of fighting off would-be assailants. Kidnapping was a lucrative business for those who could stomach it. Many victims and their families intentionally skirted police cooperation. They believed that paying the ransom gave them the best chance to recover their loved ones. In 1991, after decades of this and hundreds of kidnappings, the Italian government passed a law that froze the assets of the victims' families, prohibiting them from paying the ransom money. As a result, kidnapping for ransom dropped from 29 per year to about five. The epidemic faded, but the law remained controversial with victims and their families. This is The Extortion Economy, a five-part series from MIT Technology Review and ProPublica about the money, technology, and people behind the ransomware epidemic. I'm Meg Marco. Part one, the problem. A mystery with terrifying implications faces corporations and individuals. Tonight, it involves a computer program that is not a virus, but threatens thousands of computer owners with nothing less than blackmail. That was CBS Evening News in December 1989. This puzzling, insidious computer disk may have been mailed to 7,000 corporations and personal computer users worldwide. He's talking about a floppy disk. It's strange to think about now, living in a world where we're able to transfer data almost instantly, but the first ransomware attack was mailed to victims on a piece of flexible, magnetic plastic. When people ran the disk, their computers froze. A bright red message on the screen instructed them to print an invoice and send money to a post office box in Panama. The man who sent those disks is known as the father of ransomware. He was a Harvard-educated anthropologist named Joseph L. Pop Jr., While researching the theory that AIDS originated in green monkeys, he mailed more than 20,000 floppy disks to people interested in public health. The FBI arrested Pop before he could carry out his plan to distribute another 2 million disks. They extradited him to England, where he was deemed mentally unfit to stand trial. He didn't live to see his brainchild become one of the world's most common types of cybercrime. He did, however, manage to establish a butterfly conservatory before his untimely death in a car crash at age 55. It wasn't until 2012 that ransomware really took off. Advances in encryption made it possible to lock down a victim's data from anywhere in the world. Decentralized digital currency, like Bitcoin, made it possible to accept money, for example, without the victim mailing payments to a PO box in Panama. This meant that cyber terrorism now had a viable business model. And as the ransomware industry grew, law enforcement struggled to keep up. And a new type of vigilante was born. My name is Fabian Vosa, and I'm the CTO at MCSoft, which is a New Zealand antivirus company. I'm a lover of both cats and polar bears. I always kind of joke that I save the world on a daily basis, which obviously isn't isn't true. There are like lots of problems besides ransomware, but in some cases it actually has like major impact on society. You may not save the world every day, but he does save people's data. He's speaking to us from an undisclosed location because he tends to irritate lots of people who are very good at extortion. Essentially, what I do is I try to give like cyber criminals a really, really bad time. On a daily basis, I try to help ransomware victims recover the data that has been encrypted during cyber incidents. 
help them to either recover their data without paying any ransoms at all, or if that's not possible, at the very least, help them get their systems back up and running as fast as possible. He's part of a group of volunteers who help victims when law enforcement can't. Most of the time, he doesn't ask for money. I didn't set out to to, to become like a ransom expert or anything anything like all my primary goal is and always has been to help as many victims as possible recover the data for free because um yeah um if i lost all the pictures of my cats growing up right i would be absolutely devastated and i would imagine people who don't well who have like more relationships than the relationships to their cat would actually feel even worse I mean, imagine you lost all the pictures and videos that you took of your child growing up. That would be absolutely horrible for anyone. And I don't want people to go through that. So I decided to spend like a significant time of my free time at first. Nowadays, I also get paid to do this job. But especially in the beginning, this was like entirely voluntary. When he first started helping ransomware victims, they were mostly small businesses or individuals. These days, like the ransomware attackers, he is spending more time on bigger targets and bigger ransoms. They are looking for those juicy companies, those juicy enterprise and public networks that they can get into where they can deploy ransomware and have like a huge impact. And naturally, these sorts of attacks uh, draw the attention of the media, I mean, let's be honest, nobody cares if your Uncle Bob gets ransomed, right? (laughs) However, if like a huge company like Garmin or, for example, TravelX get ransomed and people suddenly are stranded all over the world because they can no longer exchange any cash, that is big news. We'll hear more from him later. If you told me as a child growing up at the end of the Cold War that it would become normal for Russians to attack our schools and hospitals, I would have thought you were crazy. But that's basically what's happening now. That's Tate Ryan Mosley, one of my producers, meeting Douglas Russell. His city hall office is pretty much what you'd expect. It's the most average office in the most average building you can imagine, except all the windows are painted black. So people can't walk through and just kind of see what's in the room. We have lots of equipment and servers and other things, so... His school district was the victim of a ransomware attack that affected more than 8,000 students. And as the director of technology for the Haverhill Public Schools in Massachusetts, he was the one who received the message from the attackers. Oh, man, I can't believe this is happening. What are we going to do? Oh, my God, how come I didn't see this coming? Why didn't we have better security? When his phone started buzzing in the middle of the night, it didn't take him long to confirm his fear. His district had been attacked by hackers. You've been infected, and we're going to take all your data, and we're going to use it. And if you want it back, you got to contact us this way and do this. Um, and then it gave you email addresses to contact them. They got into our network, into our systems, and they were able to run a virus, a computer program that kind of tries to attack as many computers and systems as you have. We started getting some alerts from some of our systems pretty early in the morning. I happened to wake up uh, around 2.33 and notice that my phone was just going crazy with alerts. At first glance, I didn't think a lot of it because, you know, it's, it's a school system. Sometimes we have issues. But as I started looking more into it, tried to get into some of the systems, I realized I was having some difficulties. 
I contacted our uh, systems and network engineer pretty early in the morning, and we both came directly to City Hall. So we were here really early in the morning. We went to our main servers that kind of control everything, and we logged into that, and that's when we first realized that it was truly a ransomware attack. He was afraid of what people would think. After all, everyone knew it could happen, that hackers were attacking schools and demanding payments, and it was his job to keep the worst from happening. I didn't know if my superintendent and my school committee and my city council and my mayor and all these people were going to be, and the public was going to be supportive, you know. It's, it is that kind of like when that happens, everybody looks at you like, wow, why did it happen? And, and I was very surprised of how supportive everybody was. They all kept saying the same thing. It's not if, it's when, and what do you need to fix it? We'll come back to the school district. But first, pirates. Like the ones with boats. I saw Somali pirates take control of ships and hold them for ransom, get paid the ransom, hand the ship back, and go on their merry way to, to, to repeat it. And as long as that money's flowing, it makes a great return on investment. And so it makes complete financial sense, just like any business. And you have to think of these ransomware groups and these extortionists as running a business. Lisa Forte works in cybersecurity. She came to ransomware in a slightly different way than Douglas Russell did. I actually went and studied law. And then I went into working for a, a series of companies that protect ships from, from pirates, from actual pirates with guns and everything on the sea. And that's how I got into security, securing ships from pirate attacks. And then I moved from there into UK counterterrorism intelligence, then into one of the UK police cybercrime units. And then I started my own business in 2017. She sees a lot of parallels between ransomware and pirates holding ships for ransom. A lot of what I did when I worked in counter-piracy was looking at ships and working out how best to secure them physically, what doors to weld shut, where to build the citadel, what would happen if an armed pirate got on board, how would he get to the bridge, how would we protect the bridge, that sort of thing. Um, and that's a lot of what I do now, just with networks instead of with physical ships and buildings. So it's a lot about planning as well. And I think that also comes across to, to ransomware. A lot of companies, you know, do you have a policy on paying ransoms? Do you know what your company policy would be on that? Most companies don't own ships, so they probably don't already have a piracy plan. But anyone with a computer network needs to think about ransom. Often what I see is companies who get hit with ransomware or get hit with some sort of blackmail demand have no idea whether they should pay the ransom or not pay. They don't know how to buy Bitcoin. They don't know who would authorize that. And this is all stuff you can plan in advance to make sure you're prepared. And for some companies that might be under no circumstances ever would we pay a ransom. But for a lot of companies, it would be, well, if they had this data, we would and so on and so forth. In the middle of an incident where you're in a crisis mode, that is not the time for improvisation. That is very much not the time for improvisation. So you want to plan, you want a playbook, and you want to know what to do because human beings in crisis situations do not make good decisions. What she's saying is good news for Douglas Russell, sitting in his office with the blacked-out windows dealing with a ransomware attack. As a former firefighter and paramedic, he's used to springing into action at a moment's notice. And so immediately we, we just kind of 
changed gear and stopped and said, okay, we've been hit by a ransomware. Now we need to figure out how bad we were hit and how many devices were affected and what we need to do to, to recover from that. He had backups and a plan. So a school district didn't have to pay. The biggest thing I realized was the first day when the superintendent sat down with me and we talked and she said, all right, how much is it going to cost me to fix this? And I'm like, well, I don't know yet. And so her next question was, well, how much are they asking for? And I'm like, I don't know. And we're not paying it. And as soon as I said that, that basically that relief came down because she looked at me and she's like, really? And I'm like, no, we can recover from this. Paying a ransom incentivizes future attacks. So it's good that they were prepared. But what happens if you aren't? I think, you know, with my police hat on, I would always have said, absolutely no way, don't pay, because you are funding organised crime, you're funding the problem, essentially. However, having spent a lot of time with businesses, there are legitimate situations where it's in the business interest to pay purely because you don't have the ability to get back on your feet, either at all or fast enough. So it makes economical sense in some respects to pay. However... I do think we are feeding the problem. And the issue we have is that the ransomware attackers and groups are now becoming exceptionally well-funded. And that means that they can innovate faster than we can. And that puts us very much on the back foot. And it's just getting worse. There's a lot of money to be made. It's very easy to make that money. The chances of you getting caught are probably as close to zero as you can probably get with crime. So the risk-reward is heavily, heavily skewed in favor of, of doing it. Even though he didn't need to pay the ransom, in hindsight, Russell says there were still some things he might have done differently. I wish we would have had stronger passwords for some people. I wish we would have had more training than we already have about not to click links on emails. And I wish there were certain systems that we had quarantined off differently than we had. But there's a lot of things we could have done. But I keep telling myself it doesn't matter because they would have found a different way. Lots of people and institutions are paying ransoms, and that money goes to fund more ransomware attacks. It means that while the attackers have deep pockets, someone like Russell, who only has the budget of a medium-sized school district, is outgunned. He can't compete. He's not alone in struggling with this problem. Lisa Forte has a story she likes to tell about this. Essentially, what they used to do is throw ladders up onto the side of the ship, climb up it with guns, board the ship, take control. So that's what we thought the MO was going to be. And they're approaching the ship and the guys call me and they say, we've got these these pirates approaching the ship. And so, you know, we stand by, they load the weapons, we wait, see what happens. And all of a sudden, one of the pirates pulls out an RPG and fires it at the ship and hits the some of the cargo containers that are on board the ship. And we were all sort of absolutely stunned because we'd never seen this happen before. And suddenly the ship's being hit with RPGs like it's some sort of war zone. So it just goes to show, you think you know the MO of an attacker, you think you know how it's going to go down, and they can surprise you at any point, so... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's... You're not expecting no, that. No, definitely wasn't expected. That wasn't in my, my risk plan <laughs> for that mission. So if paying the ransom funds the technological RPGs that are being shot at your school district, how do you stop the escalating cycle? How do you stop the extortion economy? Forte says we should learn from what happened in Italy when the government banned ransom payments. 
So initially, obviously, there were some fatalities, there were some tragic circumstances where ransoms weren't paid and people lost their lives or they lost their limbs and so on and so forth. But very quickly, it became completely pointless for the mafia to kidnap people because there was no money coming their way at the end of it. So that effort was a little bit in vain and and they turned instead to drugs, which uh, they've made a very healthy profit margin on over the last few years. And I sort of feel that's the same in ransomware. You know, if, if you made it illegal to pay a ransom, if people could not pay a ransom, then the market for ransomware wouldn't exist. This gets to the heart of the problem, that ransomware creates the market for itself. That does not come without a cost. If you don't get rid of the market for it, you'll never get rid of ransomware because it's profitable. And if it's profitable, there's a market for it. So I think you've either got to accept that it's part and parcel of life, which I don't think is perhaps acceptable in many ways, or you have got to do something about it and everyone's got to sort of take a stand. So we looked into it and we found out it's not that simple. Next time on The Extortion Economy, we meet the guy who became a ransom negotiator by accident. And I sort of reluctantly agreed, and then it became, it sort of snowballed, and it became like almost an everyday thing. This series is produced by Emma Silicons, Tate Ryan Mosley, and Anthony Green. It's inspired by reporting by Renee Dudley and Daniel Golden from ProPublica. We're edited by Bobby Johnson, Michael Riley, Matt Honan, and Robin Fields. Our mix engineer is Eric Gomez with help from Rebecca Weinman and theme music by Jacob Gorski. The executive producers of the Extortion Economy podcast are me and Jennifer Strong. I'm Meg Marco. Thanks for listening. Tech Trends is an original podcast series that dives into topics like quantum computing, 5G, and design thinking. Our conversations touch on how tech can transform the way businesses deliver for their customers, clients, and communities. The real power of design thinking from a business perspective is really getting to know your clients, understanding what their needs are, and finding the right problem to solve for your clients. Employees really like to give back in their day job, and this isn't just the most junior employees or your millennial generation, it's everybody. For more information, visit jpmorgan.com slash technology.